0: This is guns and butter
1: with gun
2: over there. They were sent out a whale watch and they into a holding pattern out, over, out south of Long Island while, while the two jet airliners were crashing into the trade center. There was a no go because it's a hijacking, a no- go because it's hijacking. Whereas if it had been a called as it was, which is an in-flight emergency which I think Zalewski was trying to get to, then it would be like it is when we're driving our car and we see a fire truck behind us. Oh, everybody gets out of the way. Fire truck gets to go as fast as they can. But that isn't what was set up and that isn't what happened to American 11.
0: Or, you know, I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Robin Horden. Today's show, an air traffic controller looks at the events of 9/11. Robin Horden is a pilot and former air traffic controller. By 1968, he was a full-time aviation mechanic and professional pilot at Plum Island Airport and Massachusetts Air Incorporated. From 1970 to 1981, he was an air traffic controller at Boston Center. In 1981, he was fired by the FAA for going on strike with PATCO, the professional air traffic controllers organization. He then began a new career in the comedy business at the beginning of the comedy boom, becoming artistic coordinator at Catch a Rising Star in Massachusetts. Robin Horden, welcome.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Could you tell us a bit about your career as a pilot and then uh, how you then moved into air traffic control?
2: Sure. I started uh, my aviation career when I was about 16 or so. got involved in an airport up in uh, Massachusetts, and I hung around for summers and learned how to fly, um, became a flight instructor, charter pilot moved on to a third-level air carrier pilot flying the Cape and Islands uh, up in the Boston area and uh, started to become an air traffic controller when um, I was about uh, 19 or 20 years old and uh, was assigned to Boston Center in Nashville, New Hampshire and I went on to have an 11-year career there but as a pilot I'd gained uh, 1,600 hours In the air, I was a commercial pilot, flight instructor, airplanes and instruments, certified in single-engine and multi-engine land, single-engine sea, glider. I was a certified ground instructor uh, so I could teach ground school and had spent uh, 2,000 hours or so as an apprentice aviation mechanic. Uh, learning how to uh, repair aircraft as a uh, possible other career choice. So I kind of had my hands all over the aviation career. When I finally went into the FAA and got certified at a very young age, I think I was 21 or 22, fully certified, and that would be in 1970. Yep, 1970 and 1981. There you go.
0: You were an air traffic controller then for eleven years, yeah now what did you do as an air traffic controller how How does that job go? What would you do
2: well the the job that you do at the sector air traffic control sector and it doesn't matter whether you are on the enroute route centers like I was or whether you're a tower controller, a ground controller or an approach or departure controller. You are given responsibility for a certain amount of airspace that you overlook and you monitor and you watch, and you're responsible for all of the traffic that goes through that airspace. In an air traffic control sector, you may control 20,000 feet. You may control 7,000 feet. So there is another dimension involved, which would be the third dimension. The other is the fourth dimension and this is the one that really makes everything complicated and especially for anybody dealing with any of the events around 9-11. The fourth dimension is called time. Time is a situation where you can see what's building ahead, project where aircraft might be in a certain time and discover that you should be worried about them because they may collide or they should not worry about them because they may not collide. The time issue in aviation is really problematic because you cannot stop airplanes. They have to fly. So they really now put you into a position where your analysis of the timing events, you have to be well enough in advance Of what we call the picture. It's your mental picture, seeing the three normal dimensions, applying the fourth dimension, which is the time, which means you have to take your eight to 15 airplanes and say, okay, what are they all going to look like one minute now? What are they going to look like two minutes from now? What are they going to look like three minutes from now? And then when things start to get bad, you start to make moves, hopefully many minutes in advance that will solve problems that your fourth-dimensional perception of this situation sees as a problem. This is why there's such a pretty big washout rate for uh, becoming an air traffic controller. The fourth dimension and then uh, getting the crap scared out of you if you have a near-miss are the things that really separate the wheat from the chaff.
0: Now, as an air traffic controller you are looking at one specific patch of space. Isn't that right? You're not looking at everything everywhere.
2: That is correct. And in fact, in my airspace design and procedures, there are mathematical formulas that take into consideration the number of aircraft that come into your airspace, the speed at which they fly, the total amount of time they spend in your airspace, and their transitional activity, which means... Uh, climbing, descending, turning, speeding up, slowing down. The more complicated the activity with an aircraft, the fewer aircraft you can have in your sector because you need to do more mental engagement with that. But the entire airspace from the moment that you get pushed back from a gate until you get pulled up to a gate at your destination airport is broken into small sectors that a normally trained bright air traffic controller can handle. And I designed these sectors, and the way that you, where you make changes in airspace design and you, you get to a point where you've got one sector, it's overloaded with traffic, you take steps and you d- divide that sector up now between two. So now each of those controllers has half that traffic. Most air traffic control sectors are designed for the controller to be handling maybe on an average of 6 to probably 16, maybe 20 aircraft, depending upon what their activity is. If one can think of the maneuverings that are involved when an approach controller or a final approach controller takes the aircraft coming in from all over, say, Chicago, the aircraft are coming in from the north, south, east, and west, and the final approach controller has to take all of those and then sequence them and get them each following each other at certain speeds at certain altitudes, certain directions. That's normally like you're going to handle six, maybe eight airplanes because you have got to do so much fourth-dimensional work with that. Whereas, for example, where I worked at Boston Center, we had some oceanic sectors where the sectors were huge. And the aforementioned approach sector that I talked about might be, you know, uh, 20 miles long by 10 miles wide, pretty small. Oceanic sector might be hundreds and hundreds of miles long and wide.
0: Would it be true to say, then, that the size of the sector that you watch shifts continually uh, depending upon how many planes, how much activity is going on in that sector?
2: No, when you, when you design a sector, you design it to deal with the indigenous traffic that normally goes in and out of that sector. We can take a look at the one that American 11 was in. Fundamentally, that sector is, serves two purposes. It was a westbound high-altitude departure sector from Boston Logan Airport in the metro area and anybody's going anywhere from Chicago to, let's say Atlanta, they would depart through that sector and then spread out to either the, either directly west of Chicago, let's say just say, southwest to uh, St. Louis or something like that, um, and then a little bit farther southwest to, to uh, like Atlanta. Uh, anybody going east is in another sector. Anybody going north and northwest would be in another
0: sector. So to clarify for everyone, you're referring to American Airlines Flight 11 that left Boston Center and crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September 11th. That was the first uh, uh, target hit, correct? Yeah,
2: both the American 11 and United 175. The sector that both those aircraft, you know, transited through was the Boston West high altitude sector.
0: Now, when you were an air traffic controller, weren't you also in charge of uh, tapes or uh, the recordings that went on there?
2: Well, being in charge would not be the right word. Um, Part of what I did in interrelating with the management and the procedures uh, in airspace development is I became familiar with and certified to uh, break down air traffic incidents, we would call them, Where there was some particular violation or a question or some error made or some emergency that had happened. And what we would have to do is get the radio communications, okay, the intersector communications between the controllers would have to get the radar data from uh, the radar data processing and we would have to get the track data uh, from uh, also from the, the mainframe computer. And then when we extracted all this information, we could actually recreate a virtual event. And track right down what uh, you know, and just kind of monitor and show exactly what had happened in that very in that uh, very event. So uh, I was uh, dependent upon to do that quite often, actually. And in, in there must have been a half a dozen times or so, which is a lot because we don't have that many incidents.
0: So you lost your job as an air traffic controller during the PATCO strike in 1981. Let's fast forward then to September 11, 2001. You were not uh, working as an air traffic controller then, but the two flights, uh, Flight American Airlines 11 and United Airlines 175 that hit each of the World Trade Center towers, those flights were out of Boston Center where you used to work. Isn't that right?
2: Yes, and I did find it to be very odd and the first thing that I thought was very simple, because I'd suffered one of these in my experience as, a, as an air traffic controller, when a backhoe dug up all the telecommunications line that we have, and we just kind of went black. And uh, so I said, oh, well, okay. So what must have happened is it just must have been ironic. I said, because, you know, those guys, there's no way that those guys would, you know, get where they got. It's just our system doesn't work that way. So I'm presuming that, Some type of physical communication or electronic communication broke down so that the controllers, FAA controllers, could not talk to the NORAD controllers. Uh, And in this case, it's needs for anybody who was studying this closely. I'm watching, and I'm saying, wait a minute. They were still talking to these guys. Wait a minute. They knew and were tracking all of these aircraft. There wasn't a loss, like I thought. And bang. Because early in the morning, and then, you know, the twos and twos are coming up, three, you know, and then I'm seeing Ed Koch on CNN within a half an hour saying Osama Bin Laden. I'm saying, boy, that's pretty convenient. Uh, And then just things just started not to add up. And then by the time, at the end of the day, I said, man, this was an inside job. Somebody stood down. Uh, our air defense system. Now, I did not know what, when, how, the details, why. All I know is that the National Air Defense System, NORAD interceptors, FAA controllers, first responders, did not do what were in their manuals and what had been done uh, for 50 years. Uh, There were no scrambles, and there should have been. And I've scrambled airplanes, so I know how to do it.
0: Typically then, in the United States proper, where there are commercial aircraft flying around, normally then the military wing, the NORAD or uh, the Northeast Air Defense Sector, uh, would be monitoring aircraft while the FAA is actually controlling it.
2: Bonnie, you have that 100% correct.
0: I'm speaking with pilot and former Boston Center air traffic controller, Robin Horden, today's show, an air traffic controller looks at the events of 9/11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's look at American Airlines 11, the first so-called hijacked plane to take off from Boston Center. and I believe that it departed Boston at 759 am and at 846 it crashes into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, let's say approximately 45 minutes later. What is your analysis of that flight?
2: Well, the question, I think, is should that have happened? And the answer is absolutely not. No. Well, prior to 9-11, there hadn't been a hijacking in this country for over 10 years, from what I understand. Additionally... Hijacking is only one of the protocols that an air traffic FAA air traffic controller would ask for help for. Hijacking is one, okay? And it's a completely different category than an aircraft suffering an in-flight emergency. Now, I happen to have a, a SAVE instrumental controller and in a controller team that saw a smaller aircraft was suffering a complete loss of Electrical power. Its radios were gone. Its transponder was gone. It was wobbling all over the sky because it had no navigation. And I was able to convince the crew in advance because of my piloting experience. I said, "Look, here's the story. This aircraft is losing electrical. It has no electrical supplies. Going on battery. We only have a few minutes to get to this guy. We need to do something." So we scrambled a an appropriate military aircraft that was not an interceptor because that would be too fast, a fighter. And we successfully intercepted this guy. They got out there, waved their wings, told them to get on the tail, and we landed them right through the fog and saved their lives. That is called an in-flight emergency. We scrambled an aircraft to deal with an in-flight emergency. We didn't call a Pentagon to get that airplane up. We're the first responders. Like us ringing up the fire station saying, We got a fire, get your tush over here. Go. Now, don't talk to the mayor. So, hijacking is a very slow response protocol where the nature of the hijacking is negotiations, maybe going to another airport, whatever it might be. So, the FAA and the military are not going to upset their apple cart to get a fighter escort behind a hijacked aircraft because we don't want the hijacker to know that we're doing it that we're there we're on top of this thing the captain of the airliner is changes his transponder quietly uses a few code words we use them back it's really james bondish but there's no rush because the hijackers traditionally have been patient with demands But these aircraft, all four of them, none of them, presented as hijacking first. They all presented as having in-flight emergencies. And if people listening can use my personal story as background where an aircraft lost radio, lost transponder, went off course, okay, and we declared an emergency for it. American 11 Lost radio, lost transponder, went off course, and my belief is that the air traffic control team started to reach out and do stuff right at that moment, and that would be at 8.14, 8.15 in the morning. And it was only considered to be a hijacking when strange foreign-sounding voices were heard some 10 minutes later, 8.24, And then all of a sudden, okay, the supervisory personnel and the protocol for hijacking, which is a slow motion, call the Pentagon, we don't have to rush anything, protocol was put into place when, in fact, the aircraft was in the midst of an in-flight emergency. Same thing with the United 175, and, of course, the system knew about America 11, so when 175 kicked in, okay, the system knew, New York Center knew, and they had... uh, 77 and 93. By that time, we were looking at stuff. But the protocol for getting first responder assistance to American 11 and the succeeding three flights was put under a got to get approval of the Pentagon protocol first. So should it have hit the building? No, because it was an in-flight emergency. Why don't we know this? Because the military and our government knew that they had to get the concept in people's mind into the slow-building hijack protocol. And that's what Rumsfeld's military did in June of 2001, is they changed all of the protocols by a very deft sleight of hand, sleight of wording, and they got rid of the first responder, emergency protocol, and they put all scramblings to have to gain Pentagon approval before they're off the ground. Whereas for 50 years before June, we had always had an in-flight emergency protocol, a bomber alert protocol, an inbound missile protocol, and that's what the defense system was established to do. Get pilots who are 100 feet away from the airplanes, in their suits, in the airplanes, off the ground, three minutes, and headed to whatever the, the emergency was. And that is an important distinction, and that's what is kind of coming apart. And in fact, Bonnie, I've known the information I'm sharing with you, with the exception of the identity and the information from my inside informants at Boston Center, which substantiate my base premise, but the Vanity Fair article, was such a blatant slap in the face to Federal Air Traffic Controllers, to common sense, and it was just such a complete snow job that literally that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, and I just said, okay, it's time for me. And so I started to just reach out, and and, uh, part of talking to you is part of this reach out. But what Bronner needed to do is he needed to establish in people's minds and reading... Hijacking, hijacking, explaining this, explaining that. They had to push the time of the first phone calls off. So American 11 did hit the building. Should it have? No. They had to use clever ways to detune and slow down the system, and they did that.
0: Now, the 9-11 Commission, in addition to the Vanity Fair article, they both blamed what happened on September 11th, primarily on the FAA. I wanted to just clarify with people that there are two protocols. There's an emergency protocol and there's a hijacking protocol. And the hijacking protocol is a slower protocol where the military goes up but follows a plane at a distance and just sort of watches it. Where the emergency protocol is when a plane goes off course or loses radio contact or the transponder goes off, there is an immediate response. It seems to me that even if a plane were hijacked, until it was determined that it was hijacked, you would still be in an emergency protocol, wouldn't you?
2: Your perception is exactly correct. And adding to that, you can see why the hijacking is a bit of a problem, because here's the following question. How do you establish... That it's actually a hijacking. The procedures originally established had a very secretive, quiet, James Bondish relationship between the pilot and the air traffic controller that was held out of knowledge by the hijacker. So we always took time. If we saw a squawk that was a hijack code, we would say a set of words to the pilot, something along the lines uh, Notice that you're squawking, I uh, can't remember the codes right now. Uh, I noticed that you're squawking um, 4,400. Is that right, Captain? And the captain would come back and say, uh, yes, sir. Or he would come back and say, oh, didn't mean that. That's an error. Let me get back on the right code here. So there was a clandestine way to find out. So it takes a while to get it established as actually a hijacker in and on board of these aircraft. I mean, that makes just complete sense. The point that you bring up is yes, each one of these aircraft behaved erratically as though it was having significant troubles that are related only to emergency circumstances with these giant jetliners. You just simply don't have these stable, big, steady aircraft that are unbelievably reliable flown by unbelievably capable people, start to behave erratically without you becoming suspicious that something is wrong aboard the aircraft. Major failure of electrical navigation, communications, whatever. But you don't know or presume that it's a hijacking. That information comes out later.
0: So what would your response as an air traffic controller be in an emergency? Would you immediately contact your supervisor or, or NORAD or NEADS?
2: Yes. What you do is you have your own protocol, which is that you try to establish contact with the aircraft. Failing that, you notify your immediate supervisor. And then what you do, okay, is you reach out to another facility. First, You get, if you're sitting beside a sector and say, hey, keep your eye on this guy for me. I need some help. And then you can reach right out if you want to get further and more information. You've lost transponder, and it's all over the place. Okay, you reach out to the military. In my case, it used to be called Air Defense Command, but in this place it's called NEEDS. And you point this aircraft out to them saying, what are you seeing? I think I've lost this Nordo. Uh, might have an in-flight emergency over here. What are you seeing on your radar? And this is what I believe did happen. It's what I would do. It's what Scoggin says that he would have done in the circumstance which means that some activity would have taken place somewhere between like 818, 820, 822, something like that, some type of action. And I believe that Zalewski, who was the controller of American 11, actually did inform his supervisor that he had a Nordo, and I think the supervisor said, well, you know, do your procedures, and you go to company, and you get assistant controllers helping, and you you try to reestablish communication with them. But then all of a sudden the aircraft is well off course doing crazy things. And all of a sudden the transponder goes, and it's like, wow, this guy's in trouble. And then you start to get your first responders in place. And in this case, that request for first responders was held up by the new hijack protocol procedures, okay? because all of a sudden it became a hijack at 824, And then all of a sudden, it's taken away from the emergency procedures, which it should have already been moved ahead. In fact, we feel were moved ahead. Um, And it's put into the slower hijacking situation. And then the supervisor followed their procedures all the way into the Pentagon. But the aircraft were in emergency circumstances, and there should have been aircraft on the way. In fact, a study of the, and it's been reported on ABC and other places, The initial study of information shows that the first inkling of an idea that there was some trouble in the air with an airliner reached both Needs and Otis Air Force Base at 8.30 in the morning. And that means that somebody from the FAA had reached out to them several minutes prior, so that's now at 8.28 in the morning, you know, 25, 26, 28. That completely makes sense once, you know, once the information really got to the surface about that it was a hijack. And at that time, it was still an in-flight emergency. Hijacked aircraft usually stayed on a course or requested to go to Cuba or some other place, but this aircraft was out of control. Okay, and and it, it needed a an interceptor up there, but because it had been flipped into the hijack protocol at that stage, basically we needed the Pentagon, or, or as documents show, you know, technically Rumsfeld's approval. Although the Pentagon could have uh, somebody below Rumsfeld at the Pentagon could have given that approval. Point is, it was the wrong protocol. One fast, one slow. They used the slow one. They should have been using the fast one. The fast one was taken off of the screen back in June of 2001. Couldn't use it.
0: Now, this June 2001 change that you referred to was made by then Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And in your view, this change to the protocol had severe consequences with regard to the events of September 11th. I know that it's uh, rather obscure. And uh, do you believe that change that he made there in June 2001 is open to interpretation?
2: Uh, yes, and the reason that I'm taking the position that I am is because I have been involved in creating procedures, writing such such verbiage in changes, and then coordinating between the military and the FAA, and then also getting briefing from the military, translating it, and giving the briefing to the air traffic control sectors. When anything aviation happens on the military, there is an equal reaction and match up to it in the FAA. If you parse the words exactly, a tiny obscure statement talks about giving priority in the need. You know, if there's an issue of timeliness, then you give it priority. And sure, that's in there. Sure, technically they're not guilty and caught, and and they can say, well, procedures really didn't change. Yeah, they did change because this small movement changed the emergency scramble protocols. Now. Here's the deal. For the last 10 years, there are 1,500 scrambles in the United States before uh, September 11th. Let's change it to June 2001. Um, Just from January to June 2001, I think they were in the vicinity of between 60 and 75. Then there were no reported scrambles between June and September 11th, and then we get all kinds of stories about scrambles starting on September 12th as we protected our country.
0: So are you saying then that the Pentagon has changed the protocol back?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. September 12th, 2001. Now they're all back to everything gets scrambled on real quick, everything. And that can be found in the FAA documentation. It's been lavished over and lathered over by all kinds of military gobbledygook, priority this, that, and the other talk, but that's out there. That's what they do right now. And on September 11th, the phone calls that were not picked up were the ones that were made to the Pentagon. And in fact, when you take a look at the four aircraft that were scrambled, two out of Otis and then two out of Langley, what you find out, certainly around the ones out of Otis, is that the middle-level managers, the middle-level players in the FAA and at Needs were so frustrated, things were going so bad, trying to follow this new protocol, the hijack protocol, that they, re- they automatically referred it back to what they instinctively and intuitively knew, and that is just get the airplanes in the air and get them headed someplace. So they broke the protocol the Pentagon at Romsella put in on June 2001. They broke it. And, in fact, Scoggins in Boston, the military liaison, was questioned, you know, by the Justice Department. Who gave you the authority to break this hijacked protocol? And he said, uh, nobody gave me the authority because I didn't break protocol because he took a look at the small words and he said, see, I got this authority right here. And he never got jammed up by it. So these guys reverted back to uh, reverted back with, to what they knew, what they needed to do, and that is got the airplanes, uh, you know, off the ground, and that really put a put a big problem into the into the uh, military's craw, okay? And that's because these fighters weren't supposed to be up. There they are. They're sitting just west of Otis. What do we do with them? One way or another, they were sent out a whale watch and they into a holding pattern out over out south of Long Island. While, while the two jet airliners were crashing into the trade centers. There was a no-go because it's a hijacking, and no-go because it's hijacking. FBI absconded with the tapes, therefore you've got no information on that. So what was let out ended up just being the story.
0: I'm speaking with pilot and former Boston Center air traffic controller, Robin Horton. Today's show... An air traffic controller looks at the events of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Robin, let's talk about the so-called war games on September 11, 2001. We've all heard a lot about the military conducting war games, be it uh, blips that were put on the radar screens of air traffic controllers Also, supposedly, a lot of claims have been made that most of the planes that uh, would or should have been scrambled to intercept the four so-called hijacked planes were out of the country on these war games. Now, with your experience as an air traffic controller, what do you make of all of this? Well, this
2: is really a complicated story here, and uh, let's just start to... Establish what I think smoke screen. This is just part of another bunch of fraudulent information that sounds logical. Let's just back up as to the availability of aircraft to defend this country during war games. Unbelievably simple common sense, and you will see that the military had enough aircraft on the ground, at the ready to solve this problem. In no way at any time as an air traffic controller participating in probably three or four dozen in my career, at least three or four dozen, okay, major war game activities ever did the United States military deplete its defensive resources To such an extent that they could not be prepared to respond in the event of a real attack. Never. And they didn't do it that day. Two fighters out of Otis, two fighters out of Langley, that was enough to solve this problem. They could have done it with one fighter out of Otis and one fighter out of Langley. These guys are good. Their aircraft are fast. So... Anybody who was thinking that we didn't have enough assets to handle the job is incorrect. We had them. The next issue is all of the war games. Of course, no problem. I think it is an indicator that the high perpetrators reside in the Pentagon and that there was not it was not coincidental that so much military activity was focused elsewhere, I think that was set up as the smokescreen for the public to say, oh, well, that completely makes sense. No wonder why. Add to that the lies that Bronner said, where all air traffic sectors are set up to handle only a few aircraft that goes for needs and the NORAD, too. They do not overload one flight follower. They do not give one person so much airspace that they can't do the identification, friend or foe, and kind of monitor the aircraft within their airspace. They break their sectors up the same way. It's just it's different sectors because they don't control. They're not in charge. They're in charge of monitoring. So this concept of saying, you know, and the needs controllers and the air traffic controllers had to look at 3,000 targets and decide which target was it was like a needle in the haystack. That is designed to distract, designed to give the American public, of course, I can understand this. Smokescreen. Deliberate lies. Now let's talk to the issue of the FAA controllers having inputs or injects or things presented to them on the scopes, okay, if they allowed these inputs to be put into the mix of civilian aviation traffic, and it overloaded a controller in a sector, a sector that is designed to only handle 12 airplanes, and all of a sudden, because we have war games, we throw in these magical images that the controller has to deal with. And he goes, he or she goes from 12 aircraft she has to deal with to 24 aircraft that, she, that he or she can deal with. And now you've got to make moves, you've got to shift this, you've got to shift that. Your, your complexity of your fourth-dimensional airspace all of a sudden you know, quadruples. And then that controller makes a mistake because he or she is overloaded and two real airplanes collide. And then in the investigation and the hearing, we find out, well, the reason that this happened was because the military decided to overload this airspace and this sector so we could play war games and become better defenders of the universe, but it caused deaths of hundreds of civilians who were in real airplanes. So anybody who thinks that they had inputs and injects onto civilian air traffic controller scopes is way off base. War games were played in the playgrounds that have been set up for war games to be played in, and they are in low traffic density areas out over the ocean, up in northern Canada, out in the in the in the emptiness of our desert southwest or the western airspaces where there's. You know, not very much traffic. So, to sum it all up, the entire thing of War Games was nothing but a complete distraction. And unfortunately, some folks jumped into this, okay, not thinking it through from the vantage points, perhaps, of an air traffic controller.
0: Robin, let's talk about the remote control of aircraft. Now, aircraft is very sophisticated these days, these commercial civilian airliners. What is the equipment like on an aircraft?
2: The autopilot systems, the systems that have been being developed over years to fly aircraft by themselves, have become extremely sophisticated And they integrate aircraft characteristics, weight, altitude, flight, route, wind, navigational requirements. They are flight directors. They're flight management systems. They're highly technical names. But basically, it's a really sophisticated autopilot. And they are so sophisticated that they can fly the aircraft literally from takeoff to landing without being touched by pilots. So the system is there. The way it's done is pilots just simply, if they want to let the flight director or the autopilot do it, they keep updating it or they, they plug in information about the routing, the altitude, all the stuff all along the way. They put it into the computers and the backup computers. There's all kinds of sophisticated things that basically say, okay, we're here. We want to go there. We want to go at this routing at this altitude, and this is how heavy we are, and this is the altitude we're looking at. So they can plug all of that stuff in. And thus, they can change it and route. So it's modifiable along the way. All electronics, one way or another, can be hacked, can be interrupted, can be uh, rendered useless if need be, by some form of properly coded access to their computer programming because it's a computer. They can be hacked. Were these aircraft hacked by some remote control and taken over? Bonnie, I don't know. They could be. Now, regarding the ability of the aircraft to perform all of the maneuvers that we know about those four planes that day, the autopilots, flight directors, were basically capable of pulling off all of the flight patterns flown Altitudes flown, speeds flown, with the exception of the virtually impossible aerobatic event that took place in the circling descent that was done by, allegedly done by American 77 at the Pentagon. There are flight characteristics of the aircraft that make it impossible. There are high speed flight characteristics to do with atmospheric conditions, especially near the ground, that preclude that and part of the modern-day autopilots and flight directors that I'm alluding to are designed to be so smart that if they sense that there are activities going on that are called for in this aircraft at the moment that make it go too fast, too slow, uh, bank too much, climb too much, descend too much, and they sense that everything that's going on in that aircraft and they, they have shutdowns. They just say, nope, I'm not going to allow you to do that. Nope, you can't do that because you're going to make the airplane fall apart. Nope, you can't do that. Then if the autopilots are shut off, now you need an extremely talented and experienced pilot in the 757s to be able to poke a hole in the side of the Pentagon. It's possible. A lot more study has to be done on it.
0: Well, just to clarify very quickly, there were there were four flights. Yep. Now the first 3, uh the two that hit the World Trade Center and the one that was probably shot down. Yeah. Those 3 could have been flown by pilots or by autopilot yeah. or uh, as you say flight director.
1: Yeah.
0: Now the claim that uh, flight 77 which supposedly made a loop around the Pentagon and then des- descended into it. Are you saying, then, that neither a real pilot or an autopilot could have flown that?
2: What I'm saying to you is the airline pilots that I have talked to uh, have told me that when they take a look at the speeds, the altitude, the direction, and what that jumbo jet did, okay, in that tight turn, in that descending motion, and then, then getting that low across the lawn, as we see in the videotape, is virtually impossible. I haven't... Really heard one experienced airline pilot say, "Yes, I could do that." Instead, they say, "Well, if you gave me, you know, hundred or five hundred shots, I might be able to do that." But that's an amazing maneuver for that particular aircraft.
0: I'm speaking with pilot and former Boston Center air traffic controller Robin Horden. Today's show: An air traffic controller looks at the events of 9/11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's talk a little bit more then about Flight Seventy Seven and the Pentagon. You have said that that was the one flight that actually had not been tracked had not been tracked. Could you talk about that?
2: Yes, I can. In modern aviation, and when you're dealing with the situations that we're dealing with here, there are two things people have to be careful of understanding and it's a bit complicated. Number one is that you have a target. And that can be a target that the radar picks up, and it either has a transponder, which is an electronic signal, and then it has an electronic display on the radar scope, or a primary target where the radar just bounces its signal off of the skin of the aircraft, and then that radar bounce goes back to the transmitting antenna and records that a message is saying, Blip, here I am. That's target information. Now you've got track information, and this is where it gets complicated. And the reason it gets complicated is because people use tracks across the ground, and it's not the issue. Tracks are computer generated alphanumeric identifiers that are attached to a target by a computer system that knows how to follow the transponder or look for a primary target. It's a computer generated thing. So a track is one thing, that's how we identify it. It would be like somebody in the parking lot, putting a balloon on their antenna and then having it sit there so they can track where their car is, where they've parked it. That's the track, but it's not the car. It's the identifier of the car. So the key issue on American 77 and why I am, and this happened to me day one, this is just part of the whole revelation, the original story for Flight American 77, when the information had not been modified by the 9/11 Commission report, was that at the westbound leg of American 77's flight, just before it was allegedly hijacked, there were some very odd maneuvers performed by the aircraft. There's kind of a odd loop in the course, and then as the aircraft started to turn back, turn around, or Turned to the south, turned to the left, it started to descend in its altitude. And then right at that point, it went out of radar contact. It went out of all radar contact. There was neither a transponder seen nor was there a primary target seen. In fact, the Indianapolis controller was so concerned that he said the only way that can be is if the airplane blew up. Now, remember, not everybody knows what's going on right now, except for their are hijackings all over the place, the system is crazy, and there was information passed around, they're just hiding it. So he was so concerned that they got the supervisor, the state police, they got search and rescue, they got some things going. Again, a perfect example of the FAA performing as it's supposed to, first responder responsibilities. You know, you push a button, talk to this and supervise. To get hold of this. Get hold of the state police, military guy. Engage the military in this situation. Bang! They did their jobs. But anyways, American seventy sevens target completely disappeared. That means that that aircraft was lost to positive radar contact, and an air traffic controller can't just go picking any target out of the sky randomly. Say, oh, that's American 77 over here. This guy lost the target. Now, the track for American 77 continued on its westbound heading, searching and searching as the computer track is designed and programmed to do. It kept westbound because American 77 was supposed to be heading west. It followed its flight path. Its search box was looking for the American. It wasn't finding it. But because it's a computer program, it's going to go on forever. Till it stopped. So it went westbound. American 77, the actual aircraft, was lost. And then the next thing we hear is Danielle O'Brien at Dulles Approach Controlled, after being warned conveniently by a supervisor, and I don't know where that supervisor got the information, I think from the military, to keep on the lookout for high-speed primary targets. And all of a sudden, boop. A high speed primary target pops up, allegedly, west of Dulles, and this is like 35 minutes later, and people are saying, Oh, that's got to be American 77. Track it all the way into the Pentagon, Oh, that's American 77, because somebody said it's American 77. Nobody ever did what you need to do as an air traffic controller to make sure that that primary target was indeed American Airlines Flight 77, a Boeing 757. The only way to do that is have the pilot turn the transponder on to a specific code that you ask the pilot to do, or in this case with a primary target, the air traffic controller has to work with the pilot and have the pilot report over a mutually known geographical location like a lake, a mountain a highway intersection, or an aviation intersection known on basically the maps that pilots use over an airport or something. I'm over this airport. And then the controller has to be able to see a target over that airport when the pilot reports being over that airport. Or failing that, an air traffic controller has to has to work with the pilot of a primary aircraft and say, make a 30-degree left, something like make a 30-degree left turn for and hold it for two minutes, make a 60-degree right turn and hold it for two minutes, and then go back on course. And then he or she has to scan the radar scope and look at all of the primary targets and see if any aircraft performs that maneuver. Bonnie, in each of these circumstances, the air traffic controller has to have radio communications or some form of communications with the pilot in the airplane. Nobody ever talked to American 77 from the time it was uh, allegedly hijacked or whatever happened in the western edge of West Virginia. There was no radio contact with that. There was nobody who ever reached out and said, yes, that is American 77.
0: Now, how do you know that, uh, not that contact was lost with 77, but that it wasn't tracked all the way? How do you know that?
2: Uh, because that is the radar data that initially came out from uh, the FAA, and that is the words and the testimony from the controller who was working the aircraft at that time, and it is substantiated by the fact that the entire um, network of search and rescue was engaged because they were so concerned about it blowing up or crashing, Okay, that uh, because it was out of sight. If they had seen a target, They wouldn't have been concerned about it being a crash. They would have said, oh, this is a suspicious target. This could be it.
0: Oh, oh, I see. I I didn't realize that that information was public. Oh,
2: yes, absolutely. It was public, and now it's just been eliminated because the information that the federal government has given the pilots group about the flight data recorder on American 77 shows that the aircraft uh, never made any of the odd turns, never made any descents out there, and the aircraft just went out, swung around and so they they what they did what I call fill in the dots because when it was all first recorded, and people who had been watching this from the beginning recognized that they were honest that they put it a dotted line from western West Virginia to the Washington area because nobody uh, nobody positively identified it, but slowly but surely, they worked on the media and the impression that that uh, no, this was the airplane, and they're, they're maintaining it was the airplane because they say, well, we have proof at the Pentagon that it was the airplane here, so therefore it had to be the airplane all the way here. And, of course, as you know, we, many of us strongly dispute the fact that it was American 77 that hit the Pentagon. So they are proving their point by assumption, which by nature means that it's an assumption. But the the absolute is there is legitimate testimony as to the fact the aircraft was dropped out of radar. Later on, they they found some radar someplace else from a military base that said, "Oh yeah, we've got it all like that." But that all that stuff is just fabricatable. And in fact, I have evidence that the information in front of the uh, that was finally done by the National Trans Trans NTSB uh, is fabricated. I can prove it. So.
0: So we don't know what happened to that plane. That remains a mystery. I do not believe
2: we know what happened to that airplane, and I'm not saying to you that that couldn't that it wasn't. You know, it could have been that target could have been that Boeing seven fifty seven. It's possible, but I'm saying the one thing is that nobody ever positively identified that aircraft as being that American.
0: Robin Horden, thank you very much.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I hope you found uh, what I had to say interesting
1: yeah
0: with I've been speaking with Robin Horden. Today's show has been an air traffic controller looks at the events of 9/11. Robin Horden is a pilot and former air traffic controller. By 1968, he was a full-time aviation mechanic and professional pilot at Plum Island Airport and Massachusetts Air Incorporated. From 1970 to 1981, he was an air traffic controller at Boston Center. In 1981, he was fired by the FAA for going on strike with PATCO, the professional air traffic controller organization. He then began a new career in the comedy business at the beginning of the comedy boom, becoming Artistic Coordinator at Catch a Rising Star in Massachusetts. Robin Horden is a member of Pilots for 9-11 Truth and can be contacted through their website at www.pilotsfor911truth.org. That's pilots for the numbers 911truth.org. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. Or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net.
1: evolution of the mind. If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the